0: Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised him, they sent word around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. How big is your God? How big is
1: your God? No matter how big your idea of God is, one thing I can guarantee you is this. It's not big enough. That's certainly the picture that the Bible story tells us. We will never wrap our heads around just how big God is. Uh, Why not try this exercise on for size and see how it fits you? Finish this sentence. Uh, When I meet God, I will. When I meet God, I will. Um, Some who don't know Jesus might arrogantly say, uh, tell him how badly he has run the world. Perhaps you might maybe more confidently say, um, I'm going to go and give him a big hug and a big high five perhaps. Perhaps you might ask, what was all the pain for? Why did we have to go through all that? I wonder what you think will happen when you meet God. See, if we have read our Bibles and know the God that we are talking about, uh, then we know that there is only one thing that is going to happen when we meet God face to face. And it is that word in verse 33, worship. 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 The word worship here means to honour, to show reverence, to pay homage by lying face down on the ground and kissing the ground in front of the person. Ultimate respect and praise, meeting God face to face will lead to our worship. It will be a truly awesome moment. Uh, think of every encounter somebody has with God in the Old Testament, and it's the same story, in fact. So it's no surprise then that when the disciples realise that they are face-to-face with God himself in the flesh, that they worship him. See, this moment, verse 33, It's a key moment in Matthew's account. Uh, for it's the first moment in Matthew's gospel that anybody, besides God and some demons, Uh, rightly identify Jesus as the Son of God. So what leads to this high point in the book? Well, today we are considering the aftermath of the feeding of thousands from last week. And Matthew's really clear. The the narrative flows straight on, verse 22, uh, immediately. And whilst he was dismissing the crowds, uh, this was the very night of that exodus-feeding miracle. Matthew wants us to hold these two supernatural miracles together. So why does Matthew also tell us about Jesus walking on the water? The answer is our first point. Jesus is the I am God. Jesus is the I am God. Verse 22. um, Jesus kicks the disciples into a boat. They're fishermen. They'll be in their happy place out on the water. And then Jesus gets on with dismissing the tens of thousands. Big job. And then he finally gets the alone time that he's wanted um, since back in verse 13 to pray to his father on the mountain. During which time the disciples were out on a boat, battling the wind, uh, from the start of the evening until, verse 25, the firth, fourth watch. Oh, to you and me, we need to understand that. that That is 3 a.m., but don't worry, we don't need to know how to tell the time like they did back in those days. Um, which meant then, therefore, that the professional fishermen, they had nine hours sailing and rowing under their belts by this point. So obviously by now, verse 24, they were a long away from the land, literally in the Greek, many stadiums away. They're miles out. Now, it's worth just imagining what it would have been like to be there, out on the water, 3 a.m. This lake is massive, 13 miles long, seven miles wide, and it's an extremely deep lake, so I can I'm told, not that I've swum to the bottom of it. Wind against them, literally hostile towards them, deafening sound, and nine hours of tireless rowing, uh, blisters forming on their fingers, progress minimal, energy fading, the calories from the afternoon's bread and fish, now just a distant memory. I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm in awe of the disciples. I'm not a regular sailor. But I do remember a harrowing day at the sea as a teenager in a small sailing boat. The weather changed suddenly, as it does at sea, and we capsized. And I vividly remember realising in that moment, the sea is petrifying. The sheer power, the size, the ease with which it could take a life. I'd last about a minute if it wasn't for the life jacket I was wearing. Without due respect, the sea is brutally merciless. Just over Easter, a few weeks ago, Emma, my eldest daughter, she was paddling in the sea. It was a lovely moment. The water was at her ankles. Then it, she went a bit deeper. It went to her knees. Then her waist... Then, well, as as you can imagine, I, I watched her like a hawk. The sea is very scary. And the Jews thought so too. The sea is the place of chaos and disorder. Isn't that obvious? And I think back to the disciples. They're seasoned fishermen. And notice here, they're not panicking. Uh, Not fearing death, not like the calming of the storm back in chapter 8. This is a different night. Uh, They're in control here. There is little they can do other than just sit it out and make the best progress that the wind affords. Uh, But things will change eventually. They always do at sea. Then the unimaginable happens. And it's striking how matter-of-fact Matthew makes the whole event. No wonder you didn't fall off your chairs when it was read out just now. Uh, Verse 25, uh, he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus simply strides up to them as if it were the pavement. Now before we go any further, let us just observe the obvious. Who is this Jesus? Just from reading these verses, before we put them in the the context of the Bible, who is this? Well, the logic is inescapable. Who else can control the seas? Who else can put their foot on the water? Who else can defy the laws of physics like this uh, and literally put their foot on the problem of chaos? Well, only God. The creator who made it all, And sustains it all. Jesus is God himself. I wonder how you would respond if you were in the boat um, in verse 26. I think the disciples' response is pretty reasonable. Uh, Jesus presumably came to help them across the water. Actually, he caused blind panic, verse 26. Arguably, he caused momentary superstition. It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. This is instinctive gut reaction. They're not thinking straight. It's not exposing the disciples' suppressed theology of ghosts. This is just so left field that they can't compute it. So Jesus speaks to them. His words, almost banal, But their ordinariness was designed to reassure them. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, why is saying it's me helpful to the disciples? I mean, sure, confirming that this is indeed friend and teacher rather than a ghost might be reassuring, but it probably raises a few more questions than it does answer. See, I am is more than just, it's me. Uh, Literally, this reads like this. It goes, take heart. I am. Don't fear. And I am is very important because it is the name that God gave himself in the Exodus. Uh, Exodus 3.14 for your notes. No need to turn there now. But go check it out later. This is God defining himself like this. He says, I am who I am. And it's a beautiful name for himself because it makes us look at God's works to figure out who he is. So if you want to know God, look at what he does. It's one of the reasons why it's such a good idea to be reading our Bibles, to get to know God better. So in the Exodus... God showed himself to be a saving God who brought a people from slavery through the sea. See, this is not accidental from Jesus. He is pointing to himself and he's saying, Take heart, I am. Meaning, I am the God of the Exodus. I am the I am God. Do you see? Jesus walked on the water. Why? to show us who he is, uh, God himself in the flesh. This supernatural miracle confirms Jesus as God, the I am God of the Exodus. But uh, we can't stop just yet. For Matthew adds what the other gospel writers don't. He adds Peter also walking on the water. So we need to ask, why? Why does Matthew tell us about Jesus walking on water as well? And this is much harder for us to get our heads around, so strap your thinking caps on. Uh, And this is our second point. Uh, Jesus is the I am God, who is bringing his people through the water with him. Now let me tell you, I've really puzzled over this for the last, number of weeks. What is this actually teaching us? See, uh, believe it or not, some do teach this literally. Um, Get out of boats. And if you have enough faith, you will walk on water. You might laugh inside, but it is really sad that people teach this like that. It just can't be literal. Um, That's not Matthew's intention for us here. So let me just be very clear. Next time you're on a ferry boat, please do not jump overboard and try walking because you'll drown. But most of the time though, um, this text is taught like this. Um, Get out of the boat and trust Jesus. Um, In the storms of your life, Jesus will pick you up when you fall. Uh, When you doubt who Jesus is, Fix your eyes on him and not the winds of life around you. Now, this is what you could call um, allegorizing the text or spiritualizing the text, uh, which simply means finding secret meanings um, in the text which point to spiritual realities. And here's the key, um, finding these meanings in a way that the author hasn't intended so in this example, what's the boat? Um, the church, normally. Uh, though why does Peter need to step out of the church is beyond me. Um, what's the storms or, or life's troubles? And um, What's the storms and the winds in your life? Uh, what are your step out of the boat moments? Uh, your daily faithful leap to trust Jesus? And let me tell you, it's really almost tempting to teach it to you like that, because it would preach very easily. And you know what? It's basically all true stuff, uh, even if this particular passage isn't really saying that. Because uh, do you have doubts in your life? I bet you do. Well, then fix your eyes on Jesus. And even when he puts you in the storms of life, like he put the disciples into this storm, um, you can trust Jesus, as he has authority over those storms. That is true. Do you see? It's true. But I'm not sure that is Matthew teaching us here, not here. Why would he be saying that here? See, that question has to be the key. What does Matthew, the author, want us to be thinking here? What is he teaching us here? Is he trying to paint the boat as the church? And Peter as a model disciple? Um, should we be trying to figure out is Peter a good example or a bad example? Because he is very confusingly both here, right? I don't think that's quite the right question. Why does Matthew add Peter stepping out onto the water? And here's my best shot. Um, come and tell me if you think I'm wrong later. I'd love to hear what you think. First of all, Uh, Peter's walking is explicitly linked to our first point, to Jesus' identity. Uh, Notice uh, Peter's bizarre request for divine ability. Um, If it is you, uh, no, it is you. If it is you. What does he mean by it there? Well, he's asking back from verse 27. If I am is you. If you really are the I am, well, then tell me that I can come out with you on the water. It's a very bold question, isn't it? But it makes sense of why Peter is so outrageously testing Jesus here. And now with Exodus ringing our ears from last week and the feeding, and Jesus calling himself the I am, well, what do you expect the God of Exodus to do for his people? Well, save them. But how? Well, how? What did he do in the Exodus? Well, he saved them through the waters of the sea. And so in the same way here, Jesus brings Israel through the sea with him. Peter then is the first of the people to go. If you like, the first of this new Israel to go. And that certainly fits with Matthew's narrative so far. Matthew isn't just concerned with the identity of Jesus as the Christ, but also for the new people of Israel that Christ has come to win. And it fits within this section of Matthew also, chapters 14 to 19. It's all about Jesus assembling his church. You could call it the assembly of the new Israel. Christ came to bring his people through the waters with him. What's more, it also fits with what I think is clearly being referenced throughout. Uh, Let me read for you some of the selected highlights from Isaiah 43, which Nat read so clearly for us. No need to turn there. I'll read them for you. But just sit back and enjoy these connections. There is so much overlap. It seems unimaginable that Matthew doesn't want us to have this in our minds. Isaiah 43 uh, speaks of the Exodus God uh, bringing out his people, Israel, through the waters for a new creation. Uh, Just listen to these verses. Verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. That's what Jesus says to the disciples when he sees them, isn't it? Verse 2. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Why? Well, verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt as your ransom. Verse 11, I I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Saviour. Remember, Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Verse 15, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. When was Israel created? Well, at the Exodus, of course. And verse 16, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty water. Verse 21, the people whom I found for myself. Can you hear all the quotes and the allusions? Matthew wants us to be pulling in Isaiah 43 and using it to make sense of this text. This is God calling out his people through the waters of the Exodus. So then Peter walking on the water is a picture of every person rescued into God's kingdom. Jesus He is building his church, and he's doing it one person at a time. Jesus is the first. Sorry, no, Peter is the first. Peter is the first. He says, come, Peter. So it is as if Jesus is saying, come over the water with me. It'll be just like walking through the waters in the first Exodus rescue. Jesus is starting to gather his people through the waters. And it's just one person it starts with, and just one word that starts it all. For when the I am says come, you come. There's one final obvious question though. Why does Peter sink? I wonder if you were thinking that. Why does Peter sink? Uh, Verse 30 and 31. Um, Surely that undermines Matthew's whole point of Jesus saving his people through the water. Don't you think? Well, in one sense, yes. And another, no. Uh, Jesus picks him up, verse 31. Of course he does. Um, He can. And so he will. Uh, But still, we need to ask, why does Peter sink in the first place? And I think this is here to show us um, just how difficult it is to understand what we've been talking about all morning. Uh, Jesus, who is obviously human, is also the I am God. Or in Matthew's terms, uh, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In the flesh, walking on the water, the great I am, even able to bring people with him on the journey over the water. Now let me run a thought experiment for you. I'd like you now to turn to your neighbour and look at them. Um, I know it's not very British, but don't worry. Um, That's all we're going to ask to do. We're just going to ask you to look. No touching, please. Just look. Okay, all had a good look? What would it take for you to believe that the human being sitting next to you, they are human by the way, that that human was actually God himself. What would it take? What would it take for you to believe that your neighbour was the I am God? And God, who we said earlier, couldn't be big enough in our thinking, fitting him into a single person. Well, frankly, that is incredibly hard to understand. See, it's easy for us to forget. But this idea, Jesus being God himself, the I am, uh, this was core of the first major heresy in the church history, in our church history. Uh, The Nicene Creed of 325, it was written responding to this issue. People found it incredibly difficult to get their heads around it. Of course people found this hard to comprehend. I presume you do too when you start to think about it carefully. So isn't it good to know that Peter found it hard to understand as well? Just think, despite all the evidence of the previous 24 hours, even Peter struggled to square the logic. Because quite simply, it's incredibly hard to grasp. The I am God became man, God with us. But of course, this is at the very heart of the mystery of God and of his plan to rescue his people. And so in the moments of finding Jesus hard to understand, I wonder if Peter's prayer, end of verse 30, which I think is the shortest prayer in the Bible, well, it's intended for us to memorize and to use. Verse 30, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Last week, um, after preaching the previous passage, so many people came up to me expressing how frustrated they were with the disciples for not getting Jesus' identity straight away. And I'm with them. It's blatant, isn't it? All that is until you remember what we actually believe Do we really believe, I think think we do, that Jesus, the man who got hungry and tired, who needed to brush his teeth and go to the loo, who needed to work a job and file his taxes, who had a head, shoulders, knees and toes, eyes, ears, a mouth and a nose, that that man, Jesus, was in fact the I am God himself. That's what we believe. I love how the story ends. Notice verse 32, the calming of the wind. That's not the climax of the story. But rather the climax belongs to the disciples' verdict, verse 33, which is very reassuringly what we've been saying all morning. Verse 33, who's Jesus? Well, those in the boat worshipped him. Of course they did. It's the only response to coming face to face with God. Truly, you are the son of God. And my prayer is that as we realise who Jesus is, the I am God, and his mission to bring his people over the water, that we'd worship him. So let me pray that we do that as we close. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this extraordinary supernatural event. Thank you so much for how it points to Jesus' identity, that he truly is the I am God. And thank you for showing us the mission of gathering a people to himself through the water, that it's one by one, as Jesus calls us out to come to him. But Lord, this is so hard to understand. So, in the words of Peter, we simply pray, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Amen.